0: I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a powerful, powerful episode that we have today. My guest is Rebecca Ayer, and she is the CEO of Project Heal, which does incredible work for helping people get the treatment that they deserve and to get through the barriers that have stopped people from being able to access it in the first place. It's incredible what we talk about. There are so many complexities when it comes to getting the treatment that people need that should not be there, but they are. And Project Heal tries to take some of those barriers away, or actually all of those barriers. So I'm really excited to start. Let's jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am so incredibly honored to be sitting with our guest today, who is Rebecca Ayer, who is the CEO of Project Heal, and I am thrilled to have you all hear about Project Heal and all the incredible work that she does. Rebecca, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I Again, I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled. The work you do is incredible. And I just, I'm going to stop there and say, Rebecca, can you introduce yourself to everyone?
1: Of course. So I am Rebecca Air. I use she, her pronouns. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm originally from Seattle. Um, I am a licensed therapist and I've been treating eating disorders and trauma since 2011 and I am the CEO of Project Heal, which is a national eating disorder nonprofit that's focused on equitable access to care. Um, and so we really break down systemic health care and financial barriers so that anyone with an eating disorder could have the access to the care that they need and deserve um, and the resources and opportunities that they need to heal. And so this is a huge glaring need in the eating disorder space. The statistics are staggering around how many people struggle with eating disorders, how serious they are, as I'm sure your audience knows, but also how few people are able to access care uh, for many, many reasons. And so Project Heal is really the only national nonprofit that's focused on breaking down those barriers. And it's a huge task uh, and it's very, very complicated. Um, And at the same time, it's really, really simple. The idea that someone would be struggling with disordered eating or with their relationship with food and would be ready to heal and would try to get it, and would face no after no, and you know bureaucratic barrier after bureaucratic barrier, and it, it just keeps me up at night. It's something I can't, I can't sit idly by and let be the case. And uh, in a lot of ways, you know, given the size of the issue, Project Heal is making barely a dent. I mean, this is a you know multi-million person problem. Um, and I think it's even worse than anyone realizes. And at the same time, we have the incredible fortune of being able to help people one person at a time, get access to free treatment, free diagnosis, free cash support, free insurance navigation support. And it's just a huge privilege to be able to come alongside people who are ready to heal and have external barriers in their way um, and say, not only do you deserve healing, but we're going to make sure you get it. And that's, that's something that brings me a lot of joy. Um, It's something I didn't anticipate. I'm not like a nonprofit executive by trade. I'm a clinician. Uh, I have historically always really preferred thinking about things on an individual basis. This is why I'm a therapist. But the more I got into the eating disorder field and the more systemic issues I saw, I just just had to do something about it. So it's just a privilege of my lifetime to be leading this organization. It's surrounded by
0: incredible people. And yeah, I'm excited to be here talking about it. it. It is an incredible organization. You are surrounded by incredible people and the reason why i i can say that is you're you're surrounded by people that are just they're working from their heart that is what guides them that is their this is their passion that's what motivates them i've also as previously being a clinical director at residential programs have had the honor of having clients that have benefited from project heal that have come into the treatment center, and stayed for the time that they needed and gotten the treatment that they deserve as a result of Project Mm -hmm. Heal. It is unbelievable. Rebecca, tell the listeners first, because we talk about the fact that not everybody on the show is recovered from an eating disorder. You did say, like every human on this earth, I hate, I hate to, say that so negatively, but it is true from our culture. You have struggled from disordered eating, but never been diagnosed, but you have family relationships that that started your, your passion towards this. So share a little bit about how you got, got to this point. And then I have something else I want to add.
1: <laughs> you know, interestingly, I wouldn't say that it's my family members who have like stirred my passion for this. In fact, they, my personal, like kind of by proxy experience of eating disorders was kind of a deterrent from getting into this field. I was super activated uh, by their untreated eating disorders. And, you know, none of the people in my life when I was getting into eating disorder work had ever been to treatment or recovered. And so I really had no imagination that recovery was possible in my, you know, formative years. And so it was actually kind of by accident that I got into eating disorder work and it was kind of against my, my instinct. Like I wanted to avoid it because I was like, this is too close to home. This is going to activate me. Like I can't. Um, And, and then once I started talking about it with other eating disorder clinicians, I realized that this lifelong exposure to understanding people who have eating disorders gave me an advantage in understanding them. And then I added on by when I started working with people with eating disorders, I added on to that kind of intuitive understanding of how eating disorders operate, a hope that recovery was possible. Like the difference between working with people in a clinical setting and my personal experience with my family members is that everybody who was in that facility, like on some level wanted to recover, they wanted to heal. And so That was the thing I think that inspired me to work with eating disorders. It was like the people who came afterwards. I think what I would say is that my, my being raised by a mother with anorexia, having a sister who struggled with bulimia, having a, you know, college, very close friend and college roommate struggle with an eating disorder, many, many friends since then. I think I've recently kind of surveyed my landscape and it's like, 80% of my closest friends have had eating disorders and so it's like I've just been around them my whole life. I would say that the inspiration came later. It's they it's the early exposure that gave me, I think, a handle on how complicated eating disorders are. Um and I'm so grateful that I had that experience because without it I think I would be in the dark <laughs> as a clinician, right? I think it's really a nuanced diagnosis that a lot of clinicians don't understand. Um, and so I kind of came in with that, like, I really get this thing, not so much in the, like, you know, I've been there personally, but like, I've been around so many different versions of this, this diagnosis, and I've learned how to navigate around them. And I was able to leverage that experience
0: to be a helpful person alongside people's journey. You said something, and I may have misinterpreted it, but I want to, I want to get this thought out. I think you said something that inspired you was when you were working in facilities and seeing the clients there that wanted to heal. Is that something you were referring to?
1: Well, yeah. So basically it's like my, you know, my first 28 years of life, I had been around a lot of eating disorders, but never around anyone who had ever healed or gone to treatment. And so it wasn't until I started working with eating disorders as a clinician that I, that I met people who were ready to heal. And then over the course of working in eating disorder care, I realized how many people wanted to be in that room, wanted to be in that care and couldn't get into it. And so that's the, the thing that has inspired me in my work with Project Heal.
0: The one thing that I want to point on, and maybe it, maybe I was just, I just heard it from this angle When we talk about clients that want to heal, we're also talking about clients that are still very stuck in their eating disorder, in their behaviors, in their rituals. I feel like working with eating disorder clients, you have to open up your heart, broaden your, you know, your perspective and be curious because I have clients that are holding onto their eating disorder so tight. And in in, in some mind's eye, they would say, if they don't want to give it up, why are they doing this? But it's not that they don't want to give it up. They, do, they don't want to be in the human suffering anymore. They just don't know how to do it without the eating disorder. And so it's really powerful when you strip away the behaviors and you look at the function of an eating disorder, you can look at a client that doesn't seem like they want to heal. And all of a sudden, you I, am I making sense or am I just Oh, you're making so much sense. I have obviously
1: worked with many profoundly resistant clients, right? Who are like, you know, absolutely not. I'm not willing to do this. I'm not willing to do that. Like the idea of letting go of their eating disorder is their worst fear. It's a, it's, it's a point of terror for them for sure. But it's like, you always come back to like, but you're here, but you in today, right? You, and I worked in Washington state where Um, involuntary treatment is not allowed, right? So you have some states where some people either get court ordered or they're able to be held um, for whatever reasons, like state by state laws vary. I was working in a state where you could walk out the door anytime you wanted to. And so I always knew, like, if you're in this room, some part of you is curious about what could be on the other side of letting this thing go. And it's like, I always had that hook And there's just so many people who have that hook and imagining, like, this is what gets me, right? Those folks who, for whatever reason, good insurance, adequate finances, fitting the stereotype, whatever the case may be, who are able to go into treatment with only this little sliver of willingness and this sliver of of hope and of desire to heal, they get to work through that resistance. And I think about how many people, because they don't have insurance that will cover it or don't have the finances or you know, don't fit the stereotype and don't feel comfortable seeking care in traditional eating disorder settings. They don't even get a chance to work out that, that complexity, that ambivalence. They don't get to work with their resistance. They have to, they're expected to be so a hundred percent, you know, ready that they would go through a really elaborate application process with Project Heal. And, you know, I mean, just, we, we ask so, so, so much flexibility and willingness on behalf of our beneficiaries and it's it's like it's a privilege really even to have to go into treatment and 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 fight about it you know what I mean like that's something that you get by having access to the providers who are willing to work with you through it and that's why when I think about eating disorder care and I think about Project Heal's role it's like by the time someone comes to Project Heal, they have wanted, that window is not this big. That window is wide open. It's a, it's a French doors. You know what I mean? It's like, they are so motivated. Um, They may have all kinds of internal, you know, noise about how ready they are, but they have reached the end of their road in a way that many people in, in eating disorder care you know, through their insurance or because a family member wants them to, or whatever the case may be, like don't have, they are so much more ready because they had to fight so much harder to get in the door. They had to like overcome so many of their internal barriers to even be in the room. So in a lot of ways we're dealing with like the most motivated and willing and open folks who are ready. And that's where I'm just like, I wanna make that window and that door so much wider so that people have the opportunity to go in and work with their, their understandable, the resistance and the fear is part of the illness. You can't expect people to be 100% ready to maximize you know, a small window of opportunity to heal. Um, and, and unfortunately the way our system is set up, that's what we're asking of folks who, who aren't easily entering into these treatment spaces.
0: So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the system. Let's talk about the internal barriers and the external. There are internal barriers given your race, gender, age. There are external given your insurance. So let's let's talk about that Rebecca. Where would you like to begin on this broad but really important topic?
1: Yeah, you know, interestingly I would say those identities are more external than internal um, in terms of the barriers. Internal barriers to me are shame, stigma, denial, fear. Right? These these things that keep you from even googling it, that keep you from picking up the phone, that keep you from driving to the facility, that keep you from admitting. And those are things that, like you know, unfortunately, are really on the individual
0: and their support system to overcome. We can't help people
1: overcome those things.
0: You're, you're right. As you're saying this, I'm like, of course, those are external barriers, your gender, your, your financial, you're so right. So please keep going. Thank you for correcting me.
1: Uh, No, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think they are so personal and yet that's what systemic barriers means is that there's something personal about you that is coming up against outside forces that are saying, Uh, And so let's talk a little bit about those systemic barriers, and then we can get into financial and healthcare. Because most the financial and healthcare, such a mess, but easier to understand. Systemic is really interesting. And I think you probably, you were just at the conference in Boston, the eating disorder conference, right? You look around a room like that, and there's such an obvious homogeneity to the participants in the eating disorder space, right? I've been to many eating disorder conferences. I've worked in treatment centers. If you look around most people are cisgender thin white women. Like, obviously there's some exceptions, but it's very, very stark. Uh, it, it, sometimes I walk into those spaces and I'm like, is this a sorority, you know? And the consequence, there's reasons for that. And there's consequences for that. The reasons for that to me are primarily about access to eating disorder training eating disorder competency is not taught in most master's level clinical programs and most doctoral programs. And so if you are a clinical person, you have to deliberately seek eating disorder specialization and it's expensive and it seems sort of niche and it seems really like specialized and it's stayed this very, very small community. And so it's kept the field very small, and it's kept it pretty homogenous because that means that most people who deliberately and go out of their way to seek eating disorder care are people who've probably had some kind of personal exposure to it, whether their own lived experience or a loved one. But when you then zoom out and think about, well, who's been part of this eating disorder conversation for a long time? Who's been part of the eating disorder community? Who has the treatment landscape been built for? That's a pretty narrow group of people. Most eating disorder research has been conducted on teenage girls with anorexia. Most white teenage girls with anorexia, cisgender, you know, and and then there's all these other defaults just because of the way our society is set up. The presumption is that they're straight. The presumption is that they're able-bodied. The presumption is that they're neurotypical, right? So you have a very, very tiny section of the eating disorder field for whom eating disorder treatment was designed. And for that reason, it's most effective for that population. And then you have this this ties in a little bit with insurance problems with healthcare coverage. Most insurances are just very strictly only going to cover evidence based care. Well, if your evidence based care is based on evidence for a very narrow population of people with eating disorders, then what is evidence based care for a higher weight person of color? with binge eating disorder, who's in their forties. What is evidence-based care for that person? We actually don't know, but insurance won't cover any treatment outside of this evidence-based care. So they're really being asked to enter into care that was like not at all designed for their lived experience. And so therefore it's less effective. It's being provided by a bunch of people who don't share their identities and they get missed and they get harmed. And then it's basically stays really, really narrow. And the statistics about who actually has eating disorders is just so far from the stereotype to warrant justification. The fact of the matter is that most people with eating disorders are not underweight. You know this, less than 6% of people with eating disorders are underweight. So to have the only diagnosis in the DSM have a weight criteria, be anorexia, and that's the one that most treatments designed for. I mean, it keeps the pool of people who are able to access quality care really, really tiny. and, and there's a lot of research that suggests that people of color are like way less likely to get diagnosed and they're way less likely to seek help. The m- most folks of color that I've talked with are like, even just in their own community and in their own mind, they're like, that's a white person problem. Like that's a white girl problem. It couldn't possibly be me. This comes up for men too. This comes up for transgender and not, gender nonconforming folks too. Less that they aren't aware that they're struggling with Eating disorders or disordered eating, but more that they're like, I'm going to go into this treatment center, and l- I'm very likely to be misgendered. I'm very likely to be treated according to gender binary sort of standards of care, and so you get into this space where it's like the existing eating disorder treatment landscape is just not not designed for the majority of people who have eating disorders, and by virtue of that, it's not helpful. You know, then going towards harmful, right? There's a spectrum of like, maybe it's not helpful, (laughs) but it's not harmful all the way to like, this is actively a dangerous place for me to be because I'm, I'm being so kind of forced into this um, box that I don't fit into. And so then the treatment that should be healing is harmful. So there's just a lot of consequences for being outside of the eating disorder stereotype in what kind of care might be might exist for you that would actually be helpful to you and not harmful that is very very complicated and so the systemic barriers are like a lot more complicated to solve obviously because in a lot of ways we need to like reform and reimagine re-im- and like completely <laughs> rebuild the existing treatment landscape in order to create safe places for folks who have one or more identities outside of that stereotype um but it's also about access now even through a, like a harm reduction lens we think about this a lot at project heal so where is it on the spectrum of helpful to like helpful but a little harmful to a little helpful but pretty harmful to all the way harmful and like making these case by case judgment calls about like how serious is their eating disorder what else have they tried is you know how small is this window of willingness on their part? Like all of these things, like what other protective factors might they have to endure an environment that's not exactly made for them, but might have things a, a part of the treatment that would be very, very helpful. It's really, really difficult. Um, and so, but that's our task. You know, we can't just say, sorry, no treatment exists for you. <laughs> uh, and we can't say, oh, this treatment works exactly the same for everybody. Cause it's just not true. Um, the biggest issue that I have is I have a lot of issues, obviously with our cultural understanding of eating disorders and um, you know, our kind of overall societal stereotypes of what an eating disorder looks like, but it's much, much worse at the medical level. So it's not just that you know, your mom or your cousin might not imagine that you have an eating disorder or that you might not imagine that you have an eating disorder. It's that your doctor's literally like less likely to identify that you have an eating disorder. If you don't fit that stereotype, they're more likely to prescribe eating disorder behaviors as a weight solution for you. That's actually would never in a million years be just, you know, prescribed um, or recommended to a thin white person. You're also a lot less likely to get your insurance to cover care, right? We talk, and I know you know this if you've worked in a treatment center, insurance companies require medical necessity. That keeps <laughs> the window of who's able to access care extremely tiny. You're talking about people who are lower weight or have some kind of abnormal labs or have some kind of abnormal EKG, or there's some way that their eating disorders medically affecting them and that that is a, an extremely small subsection of people with eating disorders. And it makes it more likely that if you have anorexia, that you'll be able to get care and you have to have pretty severe anorexia. That looks a very
0: specific way, right? That's not the majority of people with eating disorders. It's, it's <laughs> not the majority. And I'm telling you the hairs on my neck just stood up. I can't even tell you, first of all, and, and, and help. I want everyone to, I'm thinking this out as I'm, as I'm talking, I'm talking it through, If you go into a residential treatment program, you will see that the majority of the clients there are there for anorexia or nervosa. What happens, and this goes to the weight is is a strong evidence. That's something that they can use. What happens when somebody comes in with binge eating disorder Or bulimia is when we do the insurance authorizations or the doc-to-doc reviews, and they say, well, this client has gone seven days without binging and purging, so they obviously don't meet criteria anymore. They no longer need that level of care. This client has gone seven days without binging. They no longer. And what I would try to explain to them is that is because they are in a 24-hour facility trying their hardest to not do this behavior, doing what we want them to do, reaching out to staff. There's a difference when we're looking at a weight increase. It's so discouraging. And I have had clients with bulimia, with with binge eating disorder, who have said it is discouraging to come into treatment because 90% of the clients have anorexia. And by the way, I had anorexia nervosa. So I'm not saying anything negative about any, this is just about the insurance and medical piece. And you you see the people come in and within two weeks they get discharged. You see somebody else come in with anorexia nervosa and they can get covered for three to four months. It is, it is so unfair and it, it creates a hopelessness. And it also ends up that the client gets blamed for being a repeat in and out of treatment because they get two weeks in, insurance says they're fine, they're not, they go out, they struggle and everyone blames the client and says, you never want to recover. This is, you, it's infuriating. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I, have or if I was 10 gonna, things to say. Go for it. Great.
1: <laughs> there, what you're describing is exactly correct, right? A period of behavioral abstinence is, is grounds to discharge prematurely against the clinical advice. But, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because if you're there for a week and you're actively using behaviors, you may also get discharged for being noncompliant. This is not an easy game to win. And frankly, this weight criteria is the most problematic piece of this, because let's also introduce, you know, you mentioned binge eating disorder and bulimia. You have this big old bucket called OSFED, otherwise specified feeding and eating disorder, under which is a little problematic diagnosis called atypical anorexia, which is actually not atypical.
0: It's actually way more common. There are so many more people with atypical anorexia. By the way, I hate the word atypical. What what does that even mean? But let's talk about that because- and and now I'm like oh, I'm getting a little. Excited. But for those people who don't understand what we're talking about, is you can be in any weight and be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa because if you you can be considered in a larger body, but if you are restricting the amount that would be equivalent to anorexia nervosa, or you've lost a tremendous amount of weight, even if you're still in a larger body, that's anorexia nervosa. And these people Never get the coverage they deserve. Never show up for treatment. And now you got me going. So, so what do you have to? What where are you at with this?
1: Well, exactly everything you said. I think that I'm on I'm on team abolish uh, atypical anorexia. I think that all mention of being underweight should be eliminated from the anorexia diagnostic criteria. And I think that would clear up a lot of issues. Would it change insurance behavior? probably not for a number of years but we have to start with a clinical understanding of eating disorders and any good clinician knows that there's no there's no difference between what we now call atypical and Um, you know, traditional anorexia nervosa. And so I really do believe that the weight criteria is problematic for insurance coverage. It's also problematic because imagine being someone with an eating disorder and hearing and looking around and seeing who is getting care covered for three and four months and being kicked out after a week. The message is so loud and clear that they are not sick enough unless they are emaciated. I mean, not only is it like this—you know—my family doesn't take me seriously, or society doesn't take me seriously. Their own paid insurance coverage isn't taking their illness seriously, and there is no other mental health diagnosis in the DSM that is being measured by a bodily metric. This is be, mental health disorders are measured by thoughts and behaviors. Period. We have an inherently fatphobic diagnostic criteria in anorexia. And we wonder why people with eating disorders are struggling to take their illness seriously, because they're not being taken seriously by the people who are sworn to do no harm in their lives, the people who they pay to cover the mental health and medical care. And so when we get into this, you know, we talk about mental health parity and covering mental health, you know, diagnoses equal to medical diagnoses like we're so far from that even meaning anything because of the way we've conceived of this mental health diagnosis to begin with and we're really measuring this mental health diagnosis by medical criteria and it doesn't make any sense and it's honestly I will I'm going to pivot back to like the clinical piece because eating disorders have been measured by medical stability by insurance companies for so long it's kind of created it's created this like gap through which eating disorders fall between mental health and medical. So the mental health community is like eating disorders are too complicated medically. I don't, I don't want to, you know, touch that with a 10 foot pole. It scares me. And then medical providers are like, this is a really complicated mental health condition that I don't know what to do about. And so they don't learn, they don't screen for it. They're not equipped to identify a variety of eating disorder behaviors outside of traditional anorexia And they're like, those patients are difficult, even inpatient facilities. They're just like, put them on a tube, whatever, like, I can't help you. Right. And so you have this basically like huge kind of um, chasm that people with eating disorders fall in between, between mental health and medical. And they're just like not getting the care they need, despite being one of the most common and by far one of the most fatal mental illnesses. And it's like, why, why can't we gain traction in getting this to be taken seriously at the federal state and healthcare level. I think this goes back to then those misunderstandings about who has eating disorders and it goes back to that stigma. It's the, the eating disorders remain a diagnosis that even people who have lived experience and have been there and come out the other side like so many times they're they don't want to keep talking about it. They're like I never want to think about this again. This was the hardest season of my life, you know, so we have so, so many fewer, I think people out there building like a national conversation about this. Um, and unfortunately then the ones that do are likely the people who healed because they had access to care. And guess what? The people who had access to quality care that worked is very likely to be more than white affluent, you know, cisgender women. So then you, it's like, it's it's not getting the picture across of who's struggling um and who's struggling without care and it perpetuates the stereotype because then you have you know a very small group of people who are recovery advocates who mostly look the same
0: so what what does project heal do with this with i mean here is here is the big question what does project heal do from this point forward how is project heal working on this really really enormous problem. Well, we have a multi-pronged approach.
1: We do have direct service programs that are, you know, the heart and soul of what Project Heal does. We are helping people get into free treatment, like those folks that you encountered in your time working in treatment centers. And we get those free treatment spots by donation from treatment centers who recognize the inequity of healthcare coverage um, in covering eating disorders. And so we have this incredible network of healer circle partners ranging from eating disorder coaches, outpatient providers, IOP, PHP, residential, inpatient. So gratefully, we're able to get people connected to free care with values aligned treatment partners. We also have a cash assistance program that's really the closest thing we have to mutual aid where we just like straight up pay for people's flights. We pay for people's, you know deductibles or a portion of them we pay for hotel stays you know the night before admission we pay for um housing you know there's a lot of different things that like get in the way these tertiary costs like going to treatment isn't just as simple as will my insurance cover it there's a lot of other costs that come to bear we also have an insurance navigation program which is really really helpful for getting your insurance to cover your care or getting better insurance so helping people understand their rights, helping people know the lingo, helping people file appeals for unjust insurance denials, helping people get what we call single case agreements so we can get insurance companies to cover out-of-network providers, um, which are very often warranted because there's so many geographic barriers, gender barriers, all of these things where there's just essentially no in-network providers that are appropriate uh, facilities for, for members. And then during like open enrollment period or during um, a qualifying event, we can help people get an insurance plan that will cover their care more effectively. We also just launched our clinical assessment program. So we're offering a free one-hour consult with a clinician who can help you understand what's going on with you, help you get a sense of your diagnosis and help you think through a treatment recommendation. And we do both of those things through an anti-oppressive and harm reduction lens, really educating people about what their diagnosis means educating people about what treatment's available and what helping them, you know, discern what might be the most helpful next course of action. And because we are a nonprofit that's not providing any treatment ourselves, like we have no skin in the game in terms of where people go. So it's a much lower pressure experience than a traditional eating disorder treatment admissions process. We also can, can do the assessment for anybody, regardless of insurance status or even like intention to admit to treatment, right? We don't require that. So, those are our four direct service programs. We have a lot of other things we're doing at the higher level, but I wanted to give you.
0: I don't think people understand how valuable these services are because even when you're not in crisis, insurance lingo is very difficult to understand. Going through appeals, you know, everything that all the barriers with insurance. Now, imagine you, your child, your spouse is so sick that they're requiring treatment. And now you've got to spend all this time understanding. It is unbelievable what people have to do at the most vulnerable and frightening times of their life.
1: I could not have said it better myself. I think that it's really, really (laughs) problematic, uh, how difficult we make it to get, the care that people need covered. And frankly, like plans vary by state, by county. In some cases, I am literally a master's level clinician. I'm 38 years old. I've been working with insurance companies for years. I know way more about insurance than the average person. I had to get something covered for myself recently. And I was like, this is too much. I can't handle this. You know what I mean? And I'm like, if, if I'm overwhelmed by this, yes. Imagine if you had serious malnutrition. Multiple diagnoses, no support, and two jobs, or whatever the case may be. Imagine that you don't speak English as your you know first language. Imagine if you have active trauma that's going on right now. um no, it's just it's too much to ask of people, and so yeah, we like to we we think it's important to come alongside people and walk them through and kind of demystify the process and help them understand the lingo and help them get the thing that they need. And frankly, if you know the right things to say and you understand their, the the healthcare company's decision-making processes, you are a lot more likely to get your care covered. And so we think this is a really important thing. And it's a lot more sustainable than just getting people into free treatment because then their healthcare has covered it, right? And they're able to basically show them that treatment history. It gets to be applied towards their deductible, you know what I mean? There's just like a much more sustainable, um, I think, trajectory for the length of time that treatment takes. This is not a six-week problem to solve. Eating disorders take at least a couple of years to fully heal from, even if you're doing it all the way, you know, with no resistance and no interruptions of care because of unfair, you know, discharges or all of the things that can come up. Yep.
0: Yep. So, what were you were then going to move on to higher level? I think you were saying higher levels of care or I, I, I missed what you were no. transitioning to.
1: Yeah. We're doing a lot of things kind of at a more macro level. So those to me are the services that we have for like individuals who have eating disorders that need care now. Um, and those are things that if you are struggling with an eating disorder, you can come to project heal for, and we will do our absolute best to get you the support that you need to access the care that you need. We're doing other things, understanding that in a lot of ways, these four programs are like plugging up holes in a leaky ship and like the ship needs (laughs) maintenance. Uh, And, you know, we just aren't able to scale our services in a way that helps the millions of people who need them. And so we understand that systemic and policy changes are necessary. So the the most important thing that I, I think we're doing is we're doing this research study called Barriers to Treatment Access. We're doing it in partnership with EAT Lab out of the University of Louisville. And it's an anonymous five to 10 minute survey where people can basically help us quantify the barriers to care that they've experienced. And something I've noticed when I'm in conversations with state and federal lawmakers or insurance companies is that we state the problems that people are facing anecdotally. I had a meeting with the Department of Labor recently. I'm like, here are all of the things people are facing. And they're like, I need stats. I need numbers. I need facts, right? We need figures. And so I was like, anecdotal storytelling isn't going to change policy. We need hard numbers. And so we launched this study to quantify the barriers to treatment access that people are experiencing in the United States. That survey is going to produce a fantastic set of data that we can use to influence like state and, poli- state and federal policymakers who are making decisions about parity, who are making decisions about what employer-funded insurances are required to cover, who are making decisions about what Medicaid and Medicare policies are, who are making decisions at the health department level about what licensure requirements are. And one of my biggest things is that I am desperate to get eating disorder competency to be required for all master's level clinicians. Uh, you don't need to be able to treat the most complex case of severe and enduring anorexia to have eating disorder competency for the majority of people who struggle with eating disorders. It's not nearly as niche as it has been made to be. And it needs to be something that we don't have just five or 10,000 providers treating who mostly look exactly the same. We need tens of thousands of mental health providers who understand the basics of how to help someone with eating disorders. Um, And so my goal is to help with some of that equitable access to clinical training so we can expand the pool of eating disorder providers, expand the diversity of eating disorder providers, and eventually make it a requirement for licensure. Just like I had to, I had to take certain classes around substance use, around group therapy, whether or not I plan to work with substance use or do group therapy, because it was required for my state licensure. This is something
0: that would change a lot for a lot of people. I may be misquoting this statistic, but I think I heard you on another podcast say that there are 30 million people in the United States that have, are struggling with eating disorders and 9,000 eating disorder Mm -hmm. therapists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. I think nine is the most recent kind of best guess that I have. It's very, very hard to count them all up because there's not a great aggregate list. Um, There are a few different databases. They're not necessarily up to date. You know, it's really, really hard to get that exact number, but generously estimating by combining all of the lists, which may have duplicates. Yeah, we're looking at less than 10,000 providers.
0: For $30 people. And then we
1: were, why there's wait lists? Why is it going to take me three months to get into this treatment center? Why, when I call providers, are they not accepting my insurance or are they full or are they not returning my calls? It's because we have a log jam in the eating disorder system.
0: Uh, it's just simply inadequate. I know that when I was in graduate school, it was a one day, one of the classes that I had one day, We talked about, and simply, and I think at that time, well, (laughs) it was also quite some time ago, about 20 years ago. I think we literally just talked about anorexia, bulimia, and I believe at the time they called it compulsive overeating. I think that was, those were the only three, which is now obviously binge eating disorder. And I had an eating disorder and still did not leave graduate school knowing how to treat an eating disorder. And you're right. I, because of my privilege, joined many organizations and went to many conferences to learn how to treat eating disorders, but not everybody has that privilege. And, and, and I, I, I will say that that was my privilege.
1: Exactly. And think about it. It's like, it even goes back further where it's like, even the fact that you had the language to understand that you had an eating disorder is part of that privilege, right? The fact that you were, I don't know your story, but like presumably appropriately screened at some point, like, you know, the, those things are missing, you know, when you speak with people who fall too far outside of that narrow, narrow um kind of stereotype of who has an eating disorder, like they may have what would be very obvious eating disorder in someone else and they never even thought of it, right? <laughs> So they might be in that same graduate school program, hear about eating disorders, and they're probably reading case studies that are
0: stereotypical. Have nothing and to do with them,
1: right? Have nothing to do with them. And they go, and it still doesn't even occur to them that maybe this could be their experience. And that, so it's like this conception of, could this be me is the starting point, I think for a lot of this change. Um, because as soon as that question gets asked, They're like, oh, actually I've been struggling with, you know, disordered eating or cyclical dieting or whatever the case may be since I was six years old. And I'm, you know, 50, you know, it's like this is a lifetime thing that they've never had language for or imagination that they might be a part of this community, let alone deserve care, let alone imagine that they might consider getting that care. I mean, there's so many steps before that. And so, yeah, another, another thing we really think about a lot is community education. I wouldn't say myth busting, but expanding people's understandings of eating disorders. Um, there's obviously a lot of myths, but the fact is, is that the eating disorder, the actual eating disorder community is a very, very diverse. It's, it's a very diverse community, right? People from every walk of life, every age, every gender, every body size, Every socioeconomic status, and some more so than others, um, and yet this idea that we have about them is is still so narrow, and and it shows up every in every nook and cranny of conversations about bodies that exist. So, um, the more we can expand people's understandings, the more we can get people to go, "Huh, is this me?" or "Huh, is this someone I know?" or "Huh, maybe I should screen for this in my own practice?" or "Huh, maybe I should get some eating disorder." You know, training, or maybe we should be having this conversation at my school, or maybe we should be having this conversation with our family. And you start to get people to realize like, this is not an exclusive club of very rare, you know, extreme situation. This is probably the majority of people in this country that are unaware that this is even a conversation that they are being invited to. So we really do want to try to change that conversation as much as possible because we think that's going to be that ripple effect that really transforms the eating disorder field by inviting way more people into it that belong there and deserve the resources that have been dedicated for so long to such a small sliver. And I I have to say one last thing, I know we're coming up on time is we've just been so underfunded as a diagnosis and as a field for so long. And so the image that I have is that, and pardon the, you know, sort of crass imagery, but it feels like We've been as like an eating disorder field we've been fighting over like scraps for so long and so <laughs> there's like one loaf of bread for you know 30 million people and so it's like it makes sense to me historically that with very limited resources, limited understanding, limited money, we haven't had enough resources for every single type of person with an eating disorder. So we've dedicated it to what we perceive to be the most serious, most medically life-threatening version of the illness. And unfortunately, we normalized that and and forgot about all of the other people who actually deserve and need care and, and deserve access to healing. And so I'm actually fine with Facilities that specialize in severe and enduring anorexia—it's a terrifying illness. It costs people their lives every day. Like we know how dangerous it is, we just have to keep building other things for the majority of people with eating disorders, so that they're not basically like banging against the door of this tiny building that wasn't even made for them. Does that make sense? Like, yes, it's 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 a resources issue, and I think that eating disorder treatment centers get a lot of black for being profit oriented and being venture capital fund or private equity funded And I have to say I think this is a huge opportunity. Um, I'm not necessarily condoning it, but finally we have an influx of money in this field so let's think about how we're spending it. Let's think about how we're expanding what we define treatment as what we what we what evidence-based care looks like and let's expand it now that we finally aren't fighting over that single loaf of bread.
0: Rebecca, I I am sitting here thinking I don't want to say it but I have to say it. We're starting to wind down and I I just oh. oh I just want to keep going but I I loved where you ended. I think I think it was just like a really beautiful natural ending and I I mean is there when I say is there anything that I didn't ask you or that you wanted to say? I know we could go on and on and on and on but is there anything before we end that you would want to share?
1: Yeah, I think the main thing I want to say is, you know, I the irony is not lost on me that I, in many ways, fit the stereotype of who would be a CEO of an eating disorder nonprofit. And I think that helps Project Heal in certain ways and really hurts us in others. And I live in that uh, tension all the time, because I feel so committed to expanding people's ideas of eating disorders. And I don't help people with that by my by my appearance or by my identities. And so I think what's really, really important is that Project HEAL has been committed to bringing in people with a variety of lived experiences and identities and perspectives. And that has really, really tremendously changed how Project HEAL has approached our work and our thinking about what intersectionality looks like in the eating disorder space. And I think what is, I have to just end with this, There are incredible thought leaders in the eating disorder space right now that are doing incredible work. Um, There's a BIPOC eating disorder conference, the first ever um, BIPOC eating disorder conference that's being hosted next month in July uh, by Whitney Trotter and Angela Goins. And that is going to be, I think, one of the most important events in the eating disorder field this year. And there are just, there's so much to learn and it's, it's not that this knowledge or this perspective doesn't exist. It's just so much in the minority now because of all of the things we've said. But the more we invest in those communities and pay for the tickets to go to that conference and listen to what they say and pay for these people's wisdom and Patreon and hire these folks to be on our boards and in our in our staff, like the better the eating sort of field will be. These are the people who are going to be building... The next iteration of eating disorder treatment who are going to be designing care and then demonstrating what evidence-based care looks like within these communities um and we don't we don't have to do that they're doing it like like they have set <laughs> this table they are the table which is the theme of the bipoc eating disorder conference and it's really up to us to invest in those spaces and listen and learn and i really hope that i can encourage people to not stop here and listen to me as though i've Summarize it all. Like I'm, I'm merely sharing what I have learned by listening and and by taking people seriously um, who have been so long excluded and ignored in the eating disorder conversation.
0: Rebecca, seriously, and 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 I say this often, and I always mean it when I do, because everyone is so special and passionate that comes on the on the podcast. From the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for being on this show. The work you do, the work all eating disorder professionals are doing is phenomenal. The work you're doing is phenomenal. It is necessary. It is powerful. It is, it is, I I just, I just, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for the work you do and thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Karen. This is such a pleasure. I'm so grateful that you're, that you invited us on and that you care about what Project Hill is doing. Thank you so much.
0: Very much so. Very, very much so. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at, at Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.